Welcome to your go-to source for entertainment. Wait for it? Gaming? Wait for it? Anime? Plus Ultra! Mr. Eric Almighty and Phil the Filipino? Yeah, they've got you covered. And all you gotta do is wait for it. This is the Wait For It Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Wait For It Podcast. I am your co-host, Phil Smith, aka Phil the Filipino. And welcome to the June edition of Filuminati Fan Theory. Super excited to be back with you guys here this month. And as you can see in the title of this episode, this month's theme is going to be Jurassic June. For those of you that do not know, earlier in the month was the 30-year anniversary of the release of Jurassic Park. Which is why June is always dubbed Jurassic June within the Jurassic community. So naturally, I had to pick some Jurassic Park and Jurassic World fan theories to cover here this month. Want to welcome in any brand new listeners. Perhaps you checked us out at Bold Match Siri this weekend here at the Prime Osborne Convention Center in Jacksonville, Florida. Thanks so much for giving us a shot. And as always, for the returning listeners, thank you so much for your continued support. We truly could not do this without you. Make sure you stick around to the end of the episode. We'll let you know where you can find all the rest of our content, as well as additional ways you can support the show. With all that being said, y'all, let's go ahead and just jump right into this here. Again, as I mentioned, I've got two from Jurassic Park and then two from a Jurassic World, uh, one from the original Jurassic World, and then one from Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Let's get into the first one here. This was posted by Reddit user MageCat with Arrows. And this theory explains why the Dilophosaurus did not attack Nedri when they first met. When Nedri first encounters the Dilophosaurus, it seems curious and almost playful. Then seemingly out of the blue, it shifts gears and things rapidly spiral downward for our beloved corporate espionage character. I always thought it was just sizing him up before eating him, as in it always saw him as prey. But upon watching it for the millionth time this morning, I noticed an important detail. When they first come face to face, Nedry has his hood up and it's spread wide around his face. His poncho is bright yellow, just like the Dilo's hood flaps. As Dr. Grant said, dinosaurs and man just got thrown into the mix together and have no idea what will happen. A dinosaur has no idea what a rain poncho is, so when it first saw Nedry, all it saw was a giant figure with a huge hood around its face. Now, bear in mind that all of the park's dinosaurs are female. I believe the Dilophosaurus thought Nedry was a male, and more specifically, a potential mate. That's why it followed him like a puppy and made those little cooing noises at him. That is, until he tripped, causing his hood to fall down. Once the female Dilophosaurus realized Nedry's ruse, it became aggressive, putting up its own hood in a threatening display, hissing and spitting venom in his face. And the rest is history. This is a very popular theory within the fan theory subreddit. It's short, but very well thought out. And it also lines up with the dinosaur behavior within the book. I think this one is really solid. Also, shout out to the Dilophosaurus. One of the main reasons I want to rate it our remake for the Jurassic series, specifically based on the books, is because the Dilophosaurus that we get in the movie, those are juvenile Dilophosaurus. The one that's in the book is huge. I'm not exactly sure. I can't remember exactly how large it is, but I know it's a good size and I would love to see that terrifying animal on screen. I'm going to shout from the rooftops until my final days that we need a rated R reboot, but it probably won't happen. Let's get into the next one here. This one is posted by Reddit user Mr. Lonely Wolf. And this theory goes into the real reason why John Hammond objects to putting the Lysine contingency into effect after the dinosaurs get loose. Now, this requires a little bit of backstory. If you're not familiar with what the Lysine contingency is, 
It's something that Ray Arnold does mention in the movie that is Samuel L. Jackson's character. And this is from the Jurassic Park fandom page. The lysine contingency was a genetic alteration Henry Wu performed in the dinosaur genome. The modification knocked out the ability of the dinosaurs to produce the amino acid lysine. This forced the dinosaurs to depend on lysine supplements provided by the park's veterinary staff. In this way, dinosaurs could never escape from the park because they would never survive long enough without the food supplements. The lysine contingency was intended to prevent the dinosaurs from damaging the global ecosystem. Let's get into the theory. It says, in the original Jurassic Park, after the systems have failed and the dinosaurs are loose, Muldoon suggests to Hammond that they put the lysine contingency into effect, a failsafe that essentially wipes out all dinosaurs on the island. Hammond angrily opposes this idea, stating that is absolutely out of the question, and instead insists they try to reboot the system, even though Ray states that it's never been done before. This seems to be the bad answer to a no-brainer. Regain safety by using an infallible genetic level failsafe or attempt a dodgy reboot after finding out the system architect is a criminal and a hacker. So why does Hammond make this decision? It could be one of urgency. Ray tells Dr. Sattler that it would take seven days for the animals to slip into comas, and Tim and Lex are still missing at this point. This is unlikely, though, as he asked Muldoon to go and save his grandchildren anyway. It could be one of naivety, something he amply demonstrates going against suggestions and advice and being relatively clueless about his own park, even down to the fact that he can't read a schematic and Dr. Malcolm has to step in. It's more likely, however, that people interpret this decision, as I did, as a philanthropic and humanitarian one. Hammond not wanting to extinguish his work and, perhaps more importantly, the lives of these creatures he's just helped bring back from extinction. He earlier tells Gennaro, everyone in the world has the right to enjoy these animals. However, not for urgency, naivety, or humanity, I think his reasoning for opposing the golden bullet method is simple. There is no lysine contingency, and there never was. The biggest piece of evidence for this is the fact that the dinosaurs survive and thrive after the abandonment of Jurassic Park, no longer receiving lysine from the people there. This is the clearest indicator that the whole thing was a sham, but it's meant to be just another example of Dr. Malcolm's life finds a way speech, just as some dinosaurs managed to change sex in order to reproduce. We know that Henry Wu, despite seeming good in Jurassic Park, is actually a bit of a bad guy. In Jurassic World, he's condemned for his crimes against nature, and we find out that he secretly collaborated with Injun military to create dinosaur soldiers, including the Indominus Rex, and we see him escaping Jurassic World with embryos. Bear in mind, Ray says Dr. Wu inserted a gene. We are meant to believe this corrupt scientist engineered this precaution, probably at considerable effort, cost, and complexity. As it is recounted multiple times in the film, Hammond hates lawyers, even going as far as to call Gennaro a blood-sucking lawyer to his face. Indeed, lawyers are the whole reason for him recruiting Grant and Sattler in the first place, begrudgingly needing expert opinions to continue receiving funding from his critical investors. He also seems to despise all aspects of the legal process and the exhaustive amount of safety conditions he's had to satisfy. The full 50 miles of perimeter fence are in place. And the concrete moats and the motion center tracking systems are almost nearby. Relax. Try and enjoy yourself. Let's get something straight, John. This is not a weekend excursion. This is a serious investigation of the stability of the island. Your investors, whom I represent, are deeply concerned. 48 hours from now, if they're not convinced, I'm not convinced. I'll shut you down, John. <laughs> a running line throughout the film is Hammond stating, no expense spared. Ironic because he is shown to have spared quite a few expenses, most notably underpaying Nedry and making him want to smuggle embryos to another company for money, the catalyst for the downfall of the whole park. 
Between Hammond's cost-cutting, his hatred of the legal process, and Wu's capability for malicious intent, it is perfectly reasonable to assume that the two of them were capable of falsifying this contingency in order to satisfy the lawyers and investors behind Hammond's park. Hammond couldn't get away with not building fences and concrete moats, but he could get away with forging some invisible DNA-based failsafe to better satisfy the people analyzing the park's safety and be able to open quicker. I should note that this theory only relates to the film as the book does go more into detail about the lysine contingency. It's basically explained in the second book that the dinosaurs are surviving um, because they're getting lysine from food that is naturally rich in lysine. Another very well thought out theory. I think I've talked about this before. John Hammond in the book is much different than he is portrayed in the movie. And I think a lot of that has to do with Richard Attenborough being, you know, amazing. But it would make sense. You know, this would be kind of a peek into the real John Hammond, I guess, the one that is not on display for everybody that's visiting Jurassic Park. Someone that might, you know, cut corners or do things behind investors' backs, something like that. So I really like this one. And I really like the amount of thought that was put into it. Let's fast forward a little bit in the franchise to Jurassic World. This one was posted by Reddit user Dazric. And this pertains to the Raptor Squad switching sides, stating that that actually never happened. Near the climax of the film, Owen leads his trained but wild raptors on a hunt for the Indominus Rex. In the movie, the raptors had been portrayed more or less like real animals, specifically intelligent pack hunters, with Owen being considered as the alpha and having control and authority over them. Being the first generation, they are probably not so good at communicating with him and understanding what he wants them to do, leaving them to try and guess at it. When they hunt the Indominus, it's with people who they have seen Owen, their alpha, fight with and who he is obviously hostile towards. When they finally find the Irex and it appears that they're siding with her now, instead of turning to look at the humans in general, as they would if they were going to attack, they look at Owen specifically, probably for guidance or instruction on what to do. When Hoskins has them start shooting, in the resulting confusion the raptor pack has to act on its own, and being still mostly wild animals, hunt the perceived threat that is the other humans. They do attempt to meet up with Owen, who, incorrectly, thinks the raptors have a new alpha, but they fail. One of them is killed by a rocket, but shortly before that, she appears as if she might defer to Owen with regards to the kill she had just made, with him being higher in the pecking order. Two more pieces of evidence, and I think they may make it pretty conclusive. The raptor that kills Hoskins showed up when Hoskins was getting too close and being aggressive towards Owen. The raptor doesn't surprise him or even look at Owen. Instead, she vocalizes, getting Hoskins' attention, and then she immediately interposes herself between Hoskins and Owen, keeping her back to Owen in what was probably a defensive posture. She certainly wouldn't have done it if she thought Owen was a potential threat. She later crashes through the glass after killing Hoskins to rejoin Owen, only stopping when the Dilophosaurus appears, engaging another threat. And that Dilophosaurus is the, uh, the holographic one, of course. My final and possibly most important piece of evidence goes back to the start and end of the raptor's supposed side change. When they rejoin Owen against the Indominus, he never does anything to show or reassert dominance over the Indominus and the rest of the pack. He didn't have to because he had always been considered the Alpha because the Indominus never did anything to assert dominance over him. A couple additions here, it's also possible that, since the Raptors had already accepted a non-Raptor as the Alpha, they thought that it was Owen's goal to bring the Indominus into the pack to fight the humans, who they had again seen him fight with. It makes more sense that the Alpha would want you to fight his enemies than to fight the guy you just met, who can also communicate, and who the Alpha's enemies are attacking too. Some people have wondered why Blue went after the other trainer, and I personally think it's because she was caught up in the panic and confusion of the fight and didn't immediately recognize him like she would have with Owen. As soon as he said her name, she backed off to look at him instead of continuing to attack. We don't know how she would react beyond that because Owen calls her shortly thereafter. 
I wish we had had more time with the Raptor Squad in the films as opposed to just eliminating all of them other than Blue. Yeah, I've kind of been very critical of Blue, the action hero uh, within the Jurassic World films. You know, obviously, she's a great character and, you know, she sells a lot of merchandise. I think that's one of the big things. But this one, I think, again, very, very well thought out. And it also makes me a little sad. You know, we see in, I think, Fallen Kingdom that, you know, Owen has built up a relationship with these animals and they're dispatched of so quickly and really violently within the film too. So yeah, I wish we had had more time with the Raptor squad. Maybe we'll get like a one-off some sort of like animated feature with them in the future. Cause I definitely like to get to know Charlie Echo and Delta a little bit more, but again, another really good one. Here's the last one of the episode. And this is in regards to Jurassic world fallen kingdom. And it's posted by a Reddit user Shelba Dawn and it pertains to the Indoraptor. In Jurassic World, we are introduced to this new created version of a raptor, and it is an aggressive killing machine. My theory is that the Indoraptor is actually capable of compassion. In the movie, we are introduced to this new raptor by its creators who sing its praises for its potential to be weaponized and its ability to sort of be controlled by this laser. However, its creators admit that they do not know everything about this new species, even going so far as to call it a prototype. They are adamant that they need Blue to finish their research on this new raptor. We are later shown a video of how unusual of a dinosaur Blue is, as Chris Pratt demonstrates weakness in front of one of Blue's siblings by crouching and whimpering and attempts to attack him. When he does this in front of Blue, she approaches him cautiously and appears to try and comfort him. During the part of the movie where we see the Indoraptor in action, it is constantly being provoked. The military man attempts to tranquilize it and pull its tooth, so it attacks. When it escapes and encounters humans, it is met with loud screaming and running and eventually is shot at. This whole time, the raptor is very vicious and apparently ruthless, and we assume that this is because it is a killing machine. However, when we see Maisie escape the glass enclosure and run to her room to hide under the blanket, we see the raptor behaving completely differently than we have seen in the past. We know that it is an incredible tracker and that this young girl is clearly audible in spite of her efforts to remain quiet. But instead of pouncing on her and ripping her to shreds, the raptor cautiously approaches the whimpering and cowering girl. It reaches out its claw toward her slowly, and we assume that this is meant to harm her, but we do not know that for sure as our other hero Chris Pratt enters the room guns ablazing. My theory is that the raptor had never heard weakness before, only aggression or attempts to control it, and if given the chance, it would have attempted to comfort the girl based on its uncharacteristic behavior and the girl's evident display of weakness. The poor Indoraptor never knew any better. People do point out in the comments that, you know, this actually does kind of account for the Indoraptor's sudden change in behavior. Again, like it says in this theory, we're seeing it just be so aggressive this entire film as soon as it's introduced. And then when the situation is changed up a little bit, you know, we kind of see it be a little bit softer and quieter. Why didn't it just run into the room and like the theory says, just rip her to shreds? On the other side of things, though, I mean, just as it pointed out within this within their theory, with this being a prototype, you know, they were going to make more with Blue's DNA. And Blue is the one that shows the compassion, you know. Obviously, when you think of the Interraptor, you think of the Indominus Rex. And the Indominus Rex didn't really know how to be anything but a killing machine. And I think it's relatively similar with the Indoraptor. We may have seen it be a little bit timid with Maisie at first, but I think eventually it would have attacked her. Simply because that's what it was created to do. But an interesting theory nonetheless. What do y'all think? But folks, those are my four Jurassic June fan theories. I hope you enjoyed them. Um, I will never bore and never apologize for talking about my favorite franchise in film history. 
I hope you guys enjoyed these as well, and I will continue to find you know more and more interesting and well thought out fan theories. Maybe I should do an episode where I find just like really really dumb ones. You know what? I think I'm gonna I'll switch it up here soon and find ones that are just absolute nonsense. I think that'll be fun. If you are still here, make sure you check out the Linktree link in the show notes of this episode, and you will find all the rest of our content, including social media, as well as the rest of our episodes. You will also find a link to our Patreon page, which is still relatively new. If you feel like supporting the show a little bit extra and getting additional content, as well as shout outs for a specific tier, such as our patron Briar, only if you have the means to, we would really appreciate it. But if you want to support us in a different way, just head to your favorite podcast app, leave us a five-star review or whatever the highest review possible is for that specific app. And you know, leave some comments. Let us know you're listening. Let us know that you're enjoying the content. Honestly, that is more than enough, and we truly appreciate it. Don't forget about Bull Matsuri this weekend at the Prime Osborne Convention Center, Saturday and Sunday, June 24th and 25th. We hope to see you there. But folks, I am Phil Smith, aka Phil the Filipino, and thank you for listening to the June edition of Illuminati Fan Theories. Don't forget, we release new episodes every Monday and Wednesday with additional content over on our TikTok page. And all you have to do is wait for it. So, I heard you're looking for a go-to source for entertainment. Wait for it? Gaming? Wait for it? Anime? Plus Ultra! Mr. Eric Almighty and Phil the Filipino? Yeah, they've got you covered. And all you gotta do is... Wait for it. This is the Wait For It Podcast.